this is The Bittersweet Life, and I'm Katie Sewell. I'm a public radio professional. I've been in the business nearly 20 years, though I did do something a little different. A few years ago, I quit my job as the senior producer of a daily two-hour morning show, and I moved to Rome for a year. That's where this show began, as I bumbled my way through my first expat experience, alongside Tiffany Parks. Tiffany is my co-host. She's a childhood friend and an expat living in Rome for about 12 years. She's also a writer, with her first book, Midnight in the Piazza, coming out in March 2018. Well, now I'm back in Seattle, and Tiffany is still in Rome, and we're still exploring, and, well, if you're me at least, you're frequently struggling. This show is a journey. For all of you explorers of the world, traveling or living abroad, permanently or temporarily, reminiscing about when you lived in a different culture, or looking for the next chapter after getting home. I hope you enjoy our company and the international authors, journalists, and expats that join us as guests. If you've never heard the show before, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and come along for the whole journey. Or jump around as soon as you get a sense of things. Most of all, we're really glad you're here. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And we are again with Suzanne Morrison. Except this is the official interview with Suzanne Morrison. <laughs> last time, uh, the last two times, it was more informal. But we've been meaning to do a real interview with you for, I don't know, a couple of years. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, maybe a little backstory real quick for those who are just catching on. Suzanne, Katie, and I have been friends since we were in our, let's say, mid-teens. We met, well, Katie and I met through school, as you know, and you guys met through school as well? Or did you meet at the theater? Well, we knew each other from school, but we got to be friends through theater. Yeah, we really, what really bonded all the three of us was the theater that we uh, participated in, which was called the Youth Theater Northwest, I guess still exists, mm -hmm. on Mercer Island, Washington, and where we all grew up, and we did children's theater from what around the age of 12 to 18 does that sound about right yeah about right yeah sure i started a little earlier than that yeah, but uh, you know i won't keep my own hole precocious katie either way though we always refer to suzanne as being the other the third of our friendship sort of yeah there were a couple of other important members as well but um, I know you guys were the ones I liked the best, which we already have established <laughs> on our last show. But um, but yeah, we talk about Suzanne every so often on our podcast, so you've probably heard her name come up. Right. So from now on, you will now know who we're talking about, <laughs> which is this person. Hi. <laughs> so in doing a formal interview, though, um, we kind of established in the last couple of episodes that Suzanne is a writer. Writer of the book Yoga Bitch, which is out. Writer of many other things, which are out in various ways. I don't have a bio for you in front of me like I normally would <laughs> if you want to fill in anything. Accolades, whatever. Just sing my own praises. If for you want, yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, can. no, we won't do that. But Yoga Bitch is, why don't you tell us a little bit about where it's set and then we can go from there. Sure, yeah. It's set in um, Bali in Indonesia where I spent a couple of months with some kooky Americans studying yoga. It was a yoga teacher training program, so technically I was studying to be a yoga teacher, but really I just went to do the yoga. 
yoga camp basically <laughs> did you exactly. now you also went to yoga camp did I, you not i did go to yoga camp in the bahamas not quite as as exotic as bali but and i did teach yoga for a few years for yeah. more than a few years actually yeah. that's how you started in rome mm-hmm. that's my first job in rome so uh, i have a couple of questions there okay number one and maybe i've asked you guys this before but maybe i never have why yoga i'm gonna let you answer that because we came to yoga at the same time in our lives but not in the same place and it was kind of just a simultaneous thing that both of us were becoming obsessed with yoga but i'll let you answer that it's sort of hard for me to actually pinpoint the reason i went to my first yoga class i i knew that i thought it was awful from high school because one of our dear friends kate hess who's an actress and writer as well uh, she was another one of our youth theater northwest buddies she led us um, before a rehearsal one day, she led us in a sun salutation. And I was like, this is horrible. But I was wearing platform shoes and like a really long flannel skirt. And it was just, it was such a nightmare. So I really hated it. But then in college, I'm sorry, you kind of hated all physical activity, right? I think that's a really important point, actually. <laughs> Let it be known. I hated all. I liked lounging. Like that was that's my physical preference. Can, can I can I please quote the book? Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is close or almost exactly right. I love any type of exercise that involves laying on your back and playing dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a direct quote. <laughs> that would be about corpse pose, of course, which was my favorite pose. Still, kind of is actually. I still really like it because it's just lying down. <laughs> Like, that's what you did. And playing dead, I mean, corpse pose. Literally playing dead. It's perfect. But anyway, so in college, you know, I'd have my physical issues that we all start to get even that young, you know, just probably from studying too much or who knows what. And people kept saying, you know, try yoga, try yoga. And I, it sort of started to become this mantra for myself when I would talk to doctors or whatever. And they'd be like, how much do you exercise? I would say, I'm going to try yoga. And then um, a friend of mine told me about this yoga studio. And I think I just passed it by one day and I was like I'm going to go to a class there and I did and it was revelatory I mean it was sort of amazing because it was hard I worked really hard I sweated a ton and yet I liked it I mean I really liked it I liked how I felt afterwards that was really profound did you like it from the first time or did it take a while for you to start liking it it was the very first time and that is sort of where the book begins in many ways because it was the teacher who I call Indra in the book she was really spectacular she was really smart and she was beautiful like gorgeous and she could do every yoga pose like I mean she was so talented physically and then she was this great teacher and she um, she was really honest about her own life and about her spirituality and so yoga for her had been how she met her husband or her partner at that point they weren't married yet how her life came together was because of yoga and through yoga and I was somewhat I was probably 24 almost 25 and I was feeling really lost I was planning to move to New York to um, write and act and I had a boyfriend who I really loved but I wasn't sure that you know we were gonna make it in the long haul and I was also starting to kind of grapple spiritually a little bit with things that I thought I would never grapple with like is there a God I thought maybe I was sort of over that question having left the Catholic Church in high school so anyway that's sort of a long explanation for how I got sucked into it which was really this teacher I found her so inspiring I liked her so much 
she was very warm and like I said really smart and so I just started going to this yoga studio really regularly and it became like a habit it became something where if I didn't go ever at least four or five times a week I was craving it it really became a, a physical need to do it it changed my life I think yeah Th did it matter to you that she was beautiful in that sort of little girl way of I want to be that girl Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the front of the book, the epigraph I chose was from Anna Karenina, and it's about, uh, it's something like, in that moment, Kitty fell in love with Anna Karenina, as young girls do fall in love with older and married women. It was very much like that. Like, she was beautiful. She had her life together. I mean, she was probably 40, I'm guessing, which is how old I am now. And I was, like I said, 24, 25, starting to get a taste of how intense and complicated adulthood was going to be. And... um Yes, I think her physical beauty was a part of it, especially not just like, I mean, she had a beautiful face, beautiful hair. She was beautiful. And um, she'd been a former dancer. Um, but it was also just like the control she had over her body was really appealing to me. And I was a smoker, too, I should add. And so I was also trying to quit smoking. And this was a really new way of experiencing my body with like breathing, you know, like actually caring about breathing. <laughs> so that was also something. But that's a sort of convoluted answer to your question about her beauty right but it becomes a thing that you can not not do cannot not do can't so, not can't do. not do something like that this is the thing i think half the people listening when they hear that you're into yoga or you write a book about yoga there are so many stereotypes about people who are into yoga <laughs> where does all these like kind of negative stereotypes of yoga come from from a person on the inside well, they come from so many different places. I do think one is the proselytizing that comes along with yoga because you do get so into it that all, I mean, I remember in New York after I was back from Bali, I was living in New York, people would come over to my house for a party and they'd be like, ow, oh, my hip. And I'd be like, get down on the floor. We're going to do some yoga. And I would walk them through yoga pose. I mean, we'd be like half in the bag with wine or something like that. And we'd be doing downward dogs and I'd be like fondling their hips into the right position <laughs> to show them how to do it right. I mean, you do. You become kind of like a soapbox proselytizer for for the cause of yoga. So I think that's one part of it. If you're not excited about having someone tell you all the great things about yoga, it's kind of a drag to have to listen to it. I also think that there's just a lot of ridiculousness about it. I mean, you can't get around the fact that it's, in our country at least, it's a lot of non-Eastern people, let's say, generally white although it's not just white people doing yoga but it's a lot of westerners doing this eastern practice and sometimes that can come with a sort of oh it can be condescending or it can be sort of patronizing or it can be flat out wrong in terms of like the words we're using or the the spiritual tenets we're espousing as if they are passed down from the gurus in the caves of india down to Sean Sanderson here at, at exactly <laughs> exactly like Mr. White Guy Buddhist person um you know and so there there can be this aspect to the culture that's a little bit smug and a little um pretentious, pretentious. yeah exactly well that's why I love yoga bitch so much because it's written in such an irreverent and self-deprecating way that's not to say you didn't take yoga seriously you totally did I mean, it's a memoir, but you were writing it after a very long period of time. So you were able to look at yourself objectively and be like, I was so ridiculous because of X, Y, and Z. And you put that ridiculousness in and you laugh at yourself and everyone else gets to laugh at you. So it's not like I'm reading this book about, okay, let's just compare it to another book partially about yoga, Eat, Pray, Love. 
in which she, I believe, goes somewhere and she's meditating and she goes on. And I'm not saying I don't like this writer, but uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, but she goes on about, you know, these sort of, you know, she's going into like trances and she's crying and she's experiencing this like, you know, these incredibly transformative things. It's kind of eye rolling. It's kind of like, okay, you know, either good for you. Yeah, either (laughs) either you're just like, okay, I cannot identify with that. Or you're like rolling your eyes because you don't think that that actually happened. Whereas you did have an experience similar to that. You had a Kundalini breakthrough. But the way you tell it is so hilarious. And I think it makes it really approachable. And I think it makes it so that like people who like maybe they're interested in yoga, but they've got a big skepticism about it. They get kind of both. They get the, oh, this is really interesting and delve deep into what yoga is, not just like the, the like the positions, but a lot of more in-depth part of the practice. But they also get someone who's incredibly relatable, who is like just as flawed as they are, a smoker, someone who's obsessed with Prada, you know, all of this stuff. It's a great juxtaposition in that way. That's what I loved about it. I don't give two craps about yoga and I still enjoyed the book and nor do I need to know anything about it. Like, from a, you know, like, I don't think I'll ever do it. I did do it with you one time and mm-hmm. I was like, not for me. I don't know. I like Pilates better. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm less spiritual. Uh, that can't be true. Sorry, mom. So. Um, LAUGHTER Let's talk about Elizabeth Gilbert for a second, though, because a lot of people compared you to her just because of the search for enlightenment that's well, in the title of your book. The books did come out at similar periods in time, and uh, they both take place in Indonesia, at least part of the time. Yeah. What do you make of that comparison at this point? Mm. What do I make of that comparison? Um, you know, I when I read Eat, Pray, Love, I was like, gosh, this is so amazing. Everything goes right. Yeah. Oh, do you need to clean out this? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Can you pause it? Yes. Okay. Okay. So we paused for a minute because I don't have to explain this, but we've moved rooms now because Suzanne has house cleaners here. So now you can hear a vacuum (laughs) upstairs. (laughs) Hey, but still nice to have a clean house. Anyway, I was asking you about Elizabeth Gilbert Mm -hmm. and what do you make of the comparison that's made between you and her? I think there are a lot of obvious reasons for the comparison. One is they both deal with yoga. Actually, when I read it, I was like, oh my God, we might be the same person in some ways. And it was just all superficial stuff. Like we both went to a yoga retreat of sorts. Hers was more of a meditation retreat. Mine was more of a yoga retreat. We both were in Bali. And then we both married men who are 18 years older than us, although her marriage has ended since then. There were a lot of similarities, which could have been unnerving, except for the fact that the books were really different. I understand the comparisons, but I mean, honestly, she was just a much better student than I was. (laughs) And that was, I was like, God, she just, everything goes right for her through the whole thing. And she doesn't seem to suffer the same pitfalls of ego that I was kind of in the grip of at times. And that, that I think is one of the bigger differences between the books is that I think that's what was really compelling to me. I think for her, she was really diving deeply into the spiritual practice. And I was in my way, but I was also really delving into the trappings of it and also some of the pitfalls of a spiritual practice. Because what was interesting for me wasn't like getting to the top of the mountain spiritually. It was what happens after that having this big spiritual breakthrough for me, then like I kept wanting to have it again. And she doesn't seem to have that problem. I mean, she's just, uh, she was older for one thing than I was. And so I think she was more mature. She's more prepared for 
the challenges of a spiritual practice. I was not. I really wasn't. So I have this like total surprise spiritual breakthrough. And then one of my teachers told me the most important thing to do is to let that breakthrough go. You start at the beginning again tomorrow. Like you can't keep trying to have the breakthrough again or it will end up holding you back. And I was like, uh, no. You're wrong. Well, can I live in the breakthrough for a little while? Is that all right? (laughs) Exactly. No, because now I'm like practically enlightened. So I'm going to stay uh, in this breakthrough as long as I can. So um, so that was what was fun for me was I was able to get a lot of humor out of that, out of my sort of youthful egotism and selfishness. And so for me, it was much more about about that angle on the experience. Obviously, as you all know, a lot of our listeners are on the move or living in a foreign place. How much does Bali play into your story? Would you say that it mattered that you were there rather than studying yoga, say, in your hometown of Seattle? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, yoga is an Eastern practice. And Bali is different from the rest of Indonesia spiritually because they practice Balinese Hinduism, whereas most of Indonesia, in terms of major religions, they're practicing Islam. And so it was it was really important to me, especially because, you know, I was there before Eat, Pray, Love hit. And I hear it's much bigger now in terms of like the sort of spiritual tourism that goes on there. I think I think Elizabeth Gilbert pretty much made their economy for them for a lot of years, if not continually. But even when I was there, it was kind of astonishing how many Westerners were there with their mala beads wrapped around their wrist and, you know, wearing the sarongs. And I was one of them. Right. Like I was among these people. But that sort of dynamic between the people who come to visit Bali looking for some kind of spiritual charge and then the Balinese people themselves who I met, that became really important to the story from my perspective, especially the way in which some Westerners sort of infantilize the Balinese and also um, put them on this sort of spiritual pedestal. Like they're so enlightened, they're so in touch. They've got, I mean, one of my teachers even said something about how the Balinese have this childlike innocence that we can all learn from. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> like I was a comp lit major. You cannot talk to me about childlike innocence of brown people like this is unacceptable. And yet there is this strain in Western Buddhists and Western yogis that's really idealizing people who practice these religions that Westerners like and prefer to the ones we inherited, the desert religions, the Abrahamic religions. I think some of them really want, they want the Balinese to be better than us. And that isn't true. I mean, they're just people. They're people, you know, they just happen to have a really beautiful religion and a really beautiful culture. And there are lots of beautiful people there, of course, but it's also an industry. It's a tourism. It's an industry. You're working on another book too, that also involves you traveling. Where are you in that one? Germany? Yeah. Germany, France, um, and then a little bit into Central Europe and Portugal. Yeah, it's it's a sort of coming of age story because after high school, I decided not to go to college right away. I decided instead to study languages and move to Europe. I was going to write a novel of ideas, not just a novel, but a novel of ideas. I want you to <laughs> let that sink in. <laughs> I wish you'd written that. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Well, I tried. It's terrible. I, I think I still have some pages of it that I need to burn. You have you read some of those. Oh, my God. Actually, that would be really hilarious. I don't have them. I don't have them now. <laughs> <laughs> I could find them. I may never have them. Exactly. They might burn before 
I have that opportunity. But anyway, I, I decided that, you know, I wanted to learn from life. That was this was this big idea I had at 18 that like I was going to educate myself through my senses and through travel and experience and um, and educate myself for a while. And then I and I still planned to go to college, but I figured I would just do it later after I'd won a Pulitzer from my novel of ideas. Then I would go to college. It was a little arrogant. So anyway, yeah, so that so it does. It takes place. So I went and lived in Germany with a family that um, I had a connection to and Germany because I knew Germans. It was like literally that's how I chose where I was going to go in Europe. I was like, who do I know in Europe? I know these Germans. I'm going to go to Germany and I'm going to learn German. That Didn't was- you also study German in high school? No, I studied Spanish in high school. European trips without me. (laughs) Tiffany was getting up Aurelio, so she seemed strangely silent for a while there. Yeah, Aurelio uh, was taking a nap and I had to take care of my kids. So can we... um, No, you're not missing anything. You'll just jump right in. Don't worry about it. I have FOMO, okay? Let it be known. (laughs) No, I have... And so does he. But I really, really, really have FOMO, which means that, like, if things are going on and I'm not part of it, it bothers me. I don't even know what FOMO means. It means fear of missing out. Well, you're fine. You didn't miss anything. So you're, she's just getting going. What am I doing? I don't know what her hand symbols mean. Keep going. They mean keep going. Oh, right. No, so I, no, I didn't study German in high school. I studied Spanish in high school, which is why German was totally random. And of course, I, I could have been like, I'm going to go to, if I wanted to learn another language, it would have made sense to go to France and learn another romance language or go to Italy or Portugal, which I did eventually go to Portugal and Italy and France on this trip and I did start learning French but at first I was like I'm gonna learn German and it was nuts to go from Spanish to German because they're so different and it was like breaking my brain every single day that I was trying to study this language because I was like it's all messed up this German language it's so crazy but it ended up being like a real love I love the German language I love it but it was really hard to learn at first I don't speak German um, but I, I also love the German language it's it's something that so many people like don't don't get like they're like oh but it's so ugly i'm like oh no it's beautiful it's actually beautiful yeah it's gorgeous especially like if you're listening to like german poetry spoken by you know someone with a gorgeous accent yes oh yeah absolutely while i was writing thinking like a girl i mean it's not finished but um while i was sort of in the early stages of drafting it I was memorizing a lot of Rilke poems and just like following Kurt around the house, reciting them to him (laughs) all the time. Kurt being her husband. Yeah. No, so it's a real love. I just, I think it's a beautiful language. And I think the more you learn about it and the more you approach it, the more you can appreciate it. Yeah. So we're going to have to pause because we have some tourism that we need to do. Is that right? Is that what I'm reading? We got to go be tourists in Seattle. Sorry. So can we remember, can all of us remember where we are in this conversation? Then after we've had a couple cocktails, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and bring it up. I do want to talk about, since we've all three of us known each other for so long and we've all had different travels in the way that we've moved around the world, you two having studied yoga and languages much more than me, if we can trace any sort of evolution in what we've seen in each other or not. Oh, interesting. So that's what we're going to do. But until then... We're going to pause. We're going to go to the Space Needle. Well, they're going to the Space Needle. Katie and I are going to stand at the base of the Space Needle and watch them experience the Space Needle. Right. Because if you're from Seattle, you don't go in the Space Needle. <laughs> no. You stay down and you look at your phone until they're done. Seattle. It is always impressive. Oh, yeah. No, it is. I mean, like anything like that's well, impressive. It's but like New Yorkers going to the Empire State Building. You just don't do it. It's so good. Right. 
Um, so we're going to go do that. We're going to go meet a couple other people for happy hour. And, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. But unlike we said on the tape, we are going to leave it there for this week. And believe me, uh, the next segment, when we get back to the house, goes in a totally different direction. Including a rather touching moment by Tiffany. We'll call it an unexpected surprise. But you're going to have to wait until next week for that. Until then, find us on Twitter at BittersweetPod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash BittersweetLifePodcast. And remember, we are one day going to do a follow-up episode about loneliness. Tell us how you cope with being lonely. Or if you're lonely right now, why? What's going on, do you think? You can give us your name or be anonymous. Up to you, but we would love to have you join us on that show. Just record your thoughts in a voice memo and email it to bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com. Don't be shy. So far, only two people have done it. And I know there's a lot, a lot, a lot of you out there. So don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.